Welcome to ShopCast, talking retail strategy with your host, Michael Dart. In this program, we'll spotlight the changes you need to know about in the world of retail shopping and help you plan for the future of the industry. Now, here is Michael Dart. Good morning and welcome to ShopCast. I'm Michael Dart and I'm your host. I'm a partner at AT Kai. And I'm very pleased today to have with me my co-author for two of the books that we have written together, uh, The New Rules of Retail and Retail Seismic Shift. Uh, Robin Lewis is joining me. And for those of you who don't know Robin, he runs the Robin Report, which, by the way, if you haven't signed up for, I strongly encourage you to sign up for. It's an absolutely fantastic journal and uh, a set of insights on everything that's happening in retail today. And Robin is the CEO of that. In fact, let me introduce Robin straight away here because uh, uh, I really want to get into the conversation today. Robin actually has over 40 years of experience in strategic operating and consulting experience within the retail industry and broadly the consumer products industries, being a senior executive at great companies like DuPont, uh, VF Corporation, uh, Women's Wear Daily, and even Goldman Sachs. He's the founder and CEO of The Robin Report. And he's also a professor at the Graduate School of Professional Studies at the Fashion Institute of Technology. Wow. Robin, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Michael, and for your very kind introduction. Uh, And, you know, I'm honored to be on your show. You know, you and I have a a track record together, which I've thoroughly enjoyed and appreciated. And um, so I really was looking forward to this conversation. I think it'll be fun. Well, uh, same here as well, and uh, it's great to have you here. We're going to be talking a lot about uh, the concept and the idea that we explore in our book around platform sharing and how retailers have to think about that. But before we get into that, Robin, I would love for you to tell us a little bit about yourself, um, what you do, how long you've been doing it, uh, how you ended up where you are, just a little bit of background for our listeners to get an appreciation of your journey and uh, your passion for retail. Sure. Um First of all, I'm kind of a legend in my own mind. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I've, I've had kind of an eclectic career, you know, as you mentioned, DuPont, VF Corp, Goldman Sachs. But, you know, I think the uh, the journey has been maybe maybe a, lear- a little bit of learning out of the, the journey I've taken is that, that um, yeah, I didn't begin my life kind of targeting one particular goal. I kind of uh, took life as it came. I smelled the flowers, but so, but, but, so I learned at a, you know, it, at a very good time in my life that uh, not only uh, did I have kind of a strategic capability, which really came out when I repositioned Women's Wear Daily <clears throat> during the '90s, and. Uh, also built uh, my C-level network at that time. But I also realized that I could write. And um, so, you know, in the early 2000s, I launched the Robin Report. And I think the, the, the two elements here that, that, that made it a success and continue to make it a success is that because of the network of C-level executives that built, well, I was a Fairchild, and the knowledge I gained from being able to connect with them a lot uh, really played into the content of the Robin Report. Um, and, um, you know, so from there I went to Goldman Sachs and set up a, a professional network of, of consultants for them um, and then started the uh, second iteration of the Robin Report when it came out. And then you and I met, Michael, and that was the fun of the new rules of retail, which I mm-hmm. thoroughly enjoyed. And so... You know, the mission of the Robin Report is uh, to be the uh, unique and leading knowledge source across all retail sectors uh, for strategic insights into the major events occurring across the industry. And I think we've done that. I, I don't think there's, you know, there's a lot of newsletters. There's a lot of, you know, uh, good publications out there. Uh, a lot of good aggregators, but I think we're pretty unique in, in our approach, and I'm very happy with it. One unique thing that you do, Robin, that uh, we don't see an awful lot of, in, particularly in industry publications, is being provocative and challenging and and really taking a stand on a particular issue, whether or not it's popular 
with the executives inside a, a company or not. Can you tell us which uh, which story or uh, which piece of work you're most proud of along those dimensions or which has had the most impact, you think? Well, yeah, we'll get to the provocative one later, it, you know, but but I think the 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 thing that I enjoyed doing most, the article I enjoyed doing most, and I think which had the greatest impact, uh, was actually a series of articles, Michael, for the Robin Report early on, when I started tracking the history of Sears. Mm. All of that culminated in 31-page case study, which was titled The Rise and Fall of an Icon- Iconic American Brand which at its peak, and you and I have discussed this, and part of it's in our book, uh, New World's Retail, but at its peak in 1978, unbelievable, adjusted for inflation, it was bigger than Walmart is today and larger than the next eight retailers combined. And That's incredible, yeah. They were almost totally vertically integrated, Michael. I mean, you, you, I mean they... I know they had hundreds of different product categories, um, and they made almost all of them themselves. So yeah. um, anyway, the the Eddie Lamp, the last chapter, which would be Eddie Lampert, uh, was not necessarily in that thirty-one page case study, but I did write articles that followed uh, his path, which, as you and I have discussed, his, his, really his financial engineering to manage the business down, which he's still doing to, uh, to this day, and he's doing it uh, brilliantly. I know there was one article that, that, that a couple of these guys, financial guys, really did a lot of research, and they said, you know, they, they estimated that he has, while ta- managing that business down, mm-hmm. he has squeezed $2 billion. This was over the past, what, 10 or 15, how many years, 15 years? 2004, yeah, he squeezed $2 billion out of that financial engineering for his own pocket, which is incredible. Anyway, that, that's the case study. Marvin Traub, um, former CEO of Bloomingdale's, um, who has since passed away, um, read that case study and... and um, I'll say this humbly, I mean, kind of, he said, Rodney said, it's one of the best case studies I've ever read. And mm-hmm. he, of course, graduated from Harvard. So that was that's That was a nice flattering. compliment. <laughs> for, the, for those uh, listeners who may not, uh, you know, as you say, be familiar with it, it's, it's incredible to think that Sears was so dominant long before everybody thought that Walmart was dominant and long, of course, before everybody now thinks that Amazon's going to be dominant. And I'll be talking more about Amazon uh, at the end of uh, uh, the show today and some ideas and thoughts around them. But uh, your sense is that uh, it's been financially great for Eddie Lampert. You mentioned the $2 billion he's taken out. Do you think there is a future for Sears? I mean, uh, it looks like it's about just to, to fall over, but so curious if you think there's a future there. Well, you know, Michael... I don't know if you said this or somebody else. I'll credit you with it. I, I think you said to me, why not take that thing down to a point where he can buy it back himself with some some of his buddies, you know, private equity business, buy it back yeah. and begin the process all over again. Hmm. <laughs> Did you? Maybe that didn't come from you. I don't know that one, but I love the idea that uh, – uh, I guess if you're on the debt side of it and the, and it gets distressed enough that maybe you can actually buy it back very cheaply and you've you've pulled out, I think he's pulled out all of the major brands and assets from the company, right? They're separate now. And right, the best right. real estate in separate REITs. So it's sort of a shell and a brand and maybe there's a uh, an online play for the longest time. I know you and I talked about this. We thought that Sears actually could become a potential competitor to Amazon and go back to its roots of almost being a catalog business and being a right. direct-to-consumer business, but it appears uh, that that dream has uh, has also since uh, evaporated. Yeah, yeah, and I that that's where I give uh, Macmillan such credit over at Walmart because he he was astute enough to see what was coming, and he he said we've got to do this. And we've got to do it in a revolutionary way. We can't just learn our way into it and do it incrementally. 
And that's, of course, why he bought Jet.com. And, mm-hmm. and they're doing it rapidly. And, uh, and, and so I don't think Eddie had that sense. Eddie, obviously, brilliant financier, but he didn't have any sense or vision about where retailing was going. And mm-hmm. um, so, you know, I think that was a barrier to his, even if he had that idea of becoming totally digital. Anyway. Right. Well, we look forward to the next installment uh, that you'll write around that case study on Sears. So uh, I look forward to that. Switching topics now. I want to get straight into the uh, conversation and idea that you've been spending a lot of time around, and that is platform sharing. And that right. is the idea that retailers should be sharing their assets, their uh, physical infrastructure, maybe their distribution, maybe their customers, et cetera. I'd love you first to define what you mean by that, and then let's talk about how that's playing out in the marketplace, what we're starting to see here. Right. Well, I'm going to start off by saying that, uh, that there's a lot of work that was done in uh, retail seismic shift on platforming. This would be one perspective on it, I think, because, and, I, and I'm zeroing in and focusing on this and writing about it for the Robin Report because. I believe it is the near-term, low-hanging fruit um, that retailers and brands can get into immediately. I think short-term, there can be some big wins here. And I'm, I'm beginning to see some of the major CEOs out there understanding this. So before I get into it, um, I use the word platform because the words retail and store, we believe, Michael and I, will soon be a thing. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, those words are seven centuries old, <laughs> and here's how I view this. If you, when we hear, when CEOs hear and read those words, it, 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 it's an automatic image they get in their mind of a building full of stuff. Right, okay? right. That's, yep. that's the paradigm that they are locked in. And that is a huge barrier for jumping out of that box and thinking totally differently. It's, it's, it's a barrier to radical thinking. It's a barrier to radical um, doing, which is mm-hmm. absolutely what's required today to make the radical transformations, transformation these businesses must make or they're not going to be around. Anyway, so... We use the word platform, and um, I mean Amazon, for example. Amazon does not call themselves a retail store. Um, mm-hmm. they, he probably refers to it as marketplace, uh, but we could define it as a platform. And the way we viewed it is that Amazon, for example, can and is placing everything from every product category to services on that platform. And it can be third party. It can be competitors. And there are competitors. Uh, he is a platform upon which anything, anybody, and everything can operate on. Yeah. Um, so, so if you take that thought process, which I now believe that some of the winning, some of the, some of the major legacy brands that I think can have a chance of survival, they're, they're beginning to understand. Uh, for example, um, Kohl's. Or if there's another element that I've got to back up here. You know, uh, the online, the percentage of online business is going to shrink. Of the physical space necessary. So all mm-hmm. these big department stores, big box, like Kohl's, for example, they know that a, a lot of space is going to be freed up. Yep. But rather than close some of those spaces, the C guys, Kevin Mansell and now Michelle Goss, they look at all those 1,100 locations, not as buildings with stuff in them, but as platforms. Mm-hmm. So what do they do? Brilliantly, they invite Amazon to put shops in their stores, and they are inviting Aldi Grocery to come in and operate on their platform. 
So they've now, got Amazon. He, they've got Amazon he, in the stores. Pardon me, Michael. They've, they've got Amazon in the stores, right? In a, yeah, think, a, it, it, about a so hundred stores or so. Is that correct? Yes, they are in the stores. They're small shops in their stores. It is in a test mode, but uh, from some of inside information that I have, they're going to roll that out. They're going to use because it's a no-brainer. Uh, Amazon um, is selling their own devices there. They're even taking appointments from consumers to go to their homes and teach them how to set up their Internet of Things, their smart uh, devices. Um, and they are being used as pickup and uh, return locations for Amazon customers. But here's the other side of this synergy. For both Aldi and Amazon and anybody else that Kohl's is smart enough to bring into their onto their platform. Mm-hmm. The synergy is uh, the grocery thing's a no-brainer because traffic, grocery shopping uh, has about a four times a month visitation rate for groceries. Yeah. And it may be, I don't know, for a, a typical department store, you're looking at maybe six or eight times a year. Anyway, so so all of a sudden they got foot traffic there, and then right. for the Amazon thing they've got new foot traffic. So the there's this, the synergy is that both Amazon and Kohl's and Aldi and Kohl's each of them get fundamentally new traffic. You've got the Amazon loyalist who now goes into Kohl's, and guess what? They're uh, they see apparel across the aisle, and mm-hmm. something that brands they like or something. All of a sudden, they uh, make a um, what kind of purchase do you call that? An impulse um, purchase. A what? Impulse. An impulse. Purchase. Yeah, impulse. Im- yeah, impulse. Yeah. So all of a sudden, Coles has a new customer. Um, Robin, I want to I want to pick this up. Uh, we're going to take a short break now, but I want to pick this up after. Um, after the break, and that is uh, get a little understanding on, on who really is benefiting the most. Is it Coles or is it Amazon from this? And, uh, oh, no. um, and, and that's a topic which I think will be interesting. But let us, let us take a break now, and we'll be right okay. back. And you're listening to Shopcast. I'm with uh, Robin Lewis, the CEO of The Robin Report, and we'll be right back. business community's first choice in internet talk radio voice america business network only 12 percent of companies from the original fortune 500 list remain on the list today how do you ensure your organization stands the test of time at carney works with fortune 500 companies every day to answer this question visit atcarney.com to find out more The American consumer market will soon include six generations for the first time. Prepare for the era of personalization and total connectivity with insights from consumers at 250. Join the conversation at atcarney.com forward slash consumers dash 250. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You're tuned in to Shopcast, talking retail strategy, featuring Michael Dart as your host. Now, back to this week's program. Welcome back to Shopcast. I'm Michael Dart, your host, and I'm here with Robin Lewis, the CEO of The Robin Report. And we were just beginning to delve into the partnership between Coles and Amazon. And uh, obviously, you can see a lot on on the surface, Robin, attractive elements for Coles. Um, but is Amazon getting more out of this partnership from 
studying Coles' business model, understanding how to manage retail and potentially going to turn around and become an even more fierce competitor? Or do you think it's something that is in the long run going to be a, a win-win for both parties? Well, Michael, I'm glad you asked that question. And it's a good one. First of all, short-term, Coles and Amazon will both have, both have a win-win. But this, and this is my opinion, mm-hmm. my opinion, uh, Jeff Bezos said from the get-go, we will have to dominate in two categories, grocery and apparel. Mm-hmm. And we see what he's doing. We see what he did with Whole Foods. He acquired them. In my opinion, he is studying coals. I don't know whether he's got people in there who are trying to observe how to run a big apparel retailer. Um, but as far as I am concerned, <laughs> acquiring coal should be a no-brainer for Jeff Bezos. Overnight, he gets 1,150 locations. Mm-hmm. They are off-mall in neighborhoods, close in for that last mile. Yeah. He has the one of the largest apparel purveyors in the business overnight. He, he's dominant in apparel. Cole's uh, model is uh, one floor, big parking lots, quick in and out. So they can operate, um, pick up, you know, drop off, return. And he's got apparel business. So I think long-term, I think uh, Bezos is a um, smart enough guy, and as he's acquiring his way into the physical world, to me it makes sense. It's really interesting that because some time back there were rumors that maybe Nordstrom would be the target for Amazon, and that would be a natural partnership because obviously they've had a, a really high focus on uh, higher net worth households uh, than you know the you know, the typical Coles customer, but Nordstrom doesn't offer them the breadth of physical infrastructure and possibly the sheer number of customers that uh, Coles does. So uh, your sense would be that would be a much more logical move for them. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. And Aldi, you say Aldi coming in. Is Aldi, how do they fit into this picture? They're obviously a very hard discount uh, retailer, you know, in grocery. Uh, somebody who, by and large, could on their own disrupt the entire grocery industry here in the U.S. If people haven't shopped there, then uh, uh, look forward to seeing uh, really cheap prices uh, from private label products, etc., that Aldi offers, and they've been obviously a huge success in Europe. Uh, what, what do you think is the uh, uh, the way in which this one's going to play out between Aldi and uh, and Coles? Well, I think Aldi is is building out their own brand. I don't know how many stores. There's that word again. I don't know how many locations they have yet in the United States. Do you? I mean, I don't know. Mm-hmm. I, 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 but but the but this is just an add-on. I don't I don't see them uh, pulling back from their own build-out. Right. I think this is just capable of getting additional platforms, locations uh, with the, with the coal space, um, and. Yeah, there are synergies there, certainly. Right. It seems to me that, uh, you know, when you and I have chatted a little bit about this, that the ability suddenly to scale uh, a retailer in the space that's unproductive in these big box stores is almost unprecedented. The infrastructure exists. If you've got a almost a startup brand and a great product that's got some traction, there really should be, a, you know, all of these guys clamoring to get you into their stores because you'll start to drive traffic, novelty, newness. Yep. Um, and, uh, you know, it just seems that this this concept has got a lot of legs to it, both in terms of big partnerships like Coles and Amazon, uh, as well as potentially even for startup brands who could come in and uh, um, potentially offer a lot to a retailer who's just got a lot of unproductive space. Absolutely, Michael. Absolutely. I mean, you know, and that's, and that's why I say I wanted to start with that because I do think it's it's a near term. You know, we've talked about blockchain and all this other stuff. I think those are medium to longer term uh, facilitations, but 
this this concept of, of platform sharing, I think, is something that they can all get on. It's right. um, I was talking to somebody who will go unnamed, um, but who, you know, I mentioned that again. This is a this is an idea. It's it's my opinion. But you take a brand like Children's Place. Yep. Um, and and it, in in two places, they 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 could they could roll out children's place shops in Macy's, in Coles, mm-hmm. um, and you think about the center space of the big supermarkets. That space yeah. is dying. And to me, a real great idea would be a children's space place uh, shop center Kroger's, for example. Yeah. I mean, my God, you've got the young moms coming in there and, um, you know, four times a month, four t- whatever it is. Anyway, that's it. Yeah. Those, are, what those, you, are, what those you, are ideas about platform sharing that I think are really exciting. And I think we're going to see that accelerate because it is a no-brainer. It's a no-brainer. If you're sitting in JCPenney's shoes or competitor's shoes and you see everything that's happening with Coles, Amazon, Aldi, it's exciting, it's new, it presumably is a massive threat uh, to those guys. How do they respond? How does somebody like Macy's respond? What do you think about uh, uh, their opportunities to take advantage of this and what the future is going to look like? Well, Macy's in, Macy's specifically. Or JCPenney, any, any of them, or Target. Yeah, I know well, Target's talking to Kroger. Well, similar Target, type of- I think, is... Target, same thing. I mean, they're, they are talking to Kroger. I don't know where those talks stand. But, yeah. you know, Target never really got grocery right. And um, I think a combination of Target-Kroger would be as exciting and synergistic as Aldi's with uh, Kohl's. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, yeah. So Target, I think, is more on top of it than J.C. Penney. Um, I think Target, uh, from the C-level people I know, they do know what's happening. They do know how they have to evolve, and I think they are. I, I, my, the jury in my head <laughs> is yeah. out, still out on Macy's and J.C. Penney. Uh-huh. I think J.C. Well, Penney is a much more difficult situation. They've got still pretty big debt. Yeah. Um, and I think Marvin Ellison uh, would like to do a lot of things. I think they've been very successful with sharing their platform with Sephora. Mm-hmm. Uh, they now have Empire Flooring, which I think is doing okay. They've got a, an appliance partnership that they're sharing the platform with. Macy's, I think Macy's is so big and so complicated. And... Mm-hmm. So, uh, with antiquated processes and the culture is is old world. I I think the world. I mean, I I uh, think that their their leadership is they're brilliant. Uh, I think Jeff Gannett has. Or you know, flattened that organization. I think he's brought in some new great people. And I think he knows what needs to be done. But I think I just don't know, Michael. I mean, they're so big. I don't know how they turn that ship around quickly enough. Mm-hmm. I mean, you and I have spoken for a long time and this concept of platforming is related to one of the earlier ones uh, that we discussed in our first book, which is these large boxes becoming mini malls, really, isn't it? Yep. And, yep. and doing it at a faster, quicker pace in the more interesting way than just purely just leasing space long term. That seems to me to be an opportunity that's not being capitalized on yet by folks like Macy's. I was at uh, ShopTalk and uh, I know you were there, but I saw one company that had developed an app that takes unused physical space almost anywhere. It could be in the, the best example actually was in the underground of London where they had a men's toilet that would be in uh, unused for some time uh but thousands of people were walking past it to get to the train station and uh, put it on the app uh people took it it became number one men's shop for 
uh, for cool apparel in London, got a huge amount of bars, huge amount of sales. And then they had other, other little shops, nooks and crannies all over the place that people rent very quickly, come in, put out their new product and then go away and ends up driving a huge amount of interest and excitement. I'm surprised that we haven't seen something like that develop here for some of these big department stores where uh, they're looking for this type of blending of technology, startups, utilizing their space differently to, to drive traffic, which hopefully then has a, a knock-on effect on their core business. Well, I totally, totally agree with you. It, 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 and we haven't seen that. Um, and you would think that, that there would be more. I mean, now, now Walmart is acquiring a lot of these upstarts. Mm-hmm. And seems to be building out this long tail that you and I talk about, and uh, so maybe that's those moves are the beginning of kind of I don't know how they take those and put them in those big Walmart buildings. I don't yep. I don't know how that happens, um, but certainly that concept with, with all the space that a Macy's has or any of those department stores, certainly they, they ought to be doing that. Now, maybe Kohl's and, and, and Target and they're trying to bring some of these um, other brands that are synergy making. Maybe mm-hmm. that's the beginning of them understanding that they can do a hell of a lot more of the locations, according to what you just throughout there. I think we should see that. We should see that. Right, right. Well, you spent a lot of time with different management teams and you've met uh, a lot of these folks we've been talking about. If I put you on the spot for one second and asked you, if you were an investor, which management team have you been most impressed by as they navigate a lot of these changes? Is there is there one management team or one group that really jumps out at you as, as being the folks being most forward-thinking, most... Uh, uh, decisive, developing the right culture to navigate a lot of these changes. Do, do we want to stay within the traditional retail legacy brands? Um, I let me let me. I, I I'll throw out a few of them. I mean, I think yep. I think Nordstrom Nordstrom management team is way ahead, yep. and they certainly know what needs to be done. And um, one of the reasons I think they attempted to go private is they want to get out from under the pressure of Wall Street because they know that the capital investment they have to make is going to cut into their march. It's going to cut into their profits. And But they're, but they're willing to do it. They've got the vision to do it. I think uh, among the traditional department stores, I would say that they're a leader. Yeah. I, I certainly – I would put Walmart right up there if not – in term, in in fact, I would put Walmart on top because you talk about big, you talk about having to transform something mm-hmm. that huge, you know, right. half a trillion dollar business, half a trillion dollar business. Um, so I, I would say they've got to be number one. They've got to be number yeah. one. And I think Nordstrom is there. Uh, I think uh, from from I think the Target team is going in the right direction. And I now think Kohl's with their new management is mm-hmm. going into the right direction. Uh, of the other big companies, I've always said this, I think VF Corporation is one of the best-run companies in the industry, and I think they certainly have the vision, uh, the strategic minds minds to yep. know how to do it. And you, you've met a lot of them, too, so you know that. Right. There's no doubt Nordstrom's... Uh, uh, executive team, you know, when you and I went up there, it's very clear that they're advanced thinking and it'll be, I think, very interesting to see how they respond to the fact that they haven't been able to take, um, take themselves private and manage their, their challenges, their capital investments outside of the investor eyes. One company I want to, uh, spend a minute on as well, Robin is J crew, because you've written a lot about J crew and you've studied them. They seem to be one of the, the old brands that, uh, really should have a place in the new world, but are struggling right now. And I'm curious if you've got a perspective and set of ideas on where they are, where they are today, and what it's going to take to change. Michael, I'm glad you asked that question about J. Crew, um, because you know there's a there's a larger point here that that I wanted to make when I wrote this article about 
Jay Crew. First of all, uh, you talked about being provocative. The title of that article was J. Crew is in the danger zone near the graveyard where the gap exists. Mm-hmm. <laughs> now, for most of your listeners may know that Mickey Drexler was a brilliant CEO of the Gap in its rise to one of the biggest apparel specialty retail chains in the world and was also at the helm when it crashed. Right. Um, he's a brilliant guy, and uh, in fact, they call him uh, the merchant prince of the industry. So he then took over J. Crew, and they were in the dumps. Mm-hmm. And Mickey turned them around and got them running. And but all of a sudden, they ran into a wall. And what I observed and what I wrote about was, and by the way, that, that article when it ran, Mickey Drexler called me the next morning first thing, and I have never heard such expletives. At me vilifying me, and I let him go on for a little bit, and I said, "But Mickey, when he paused, I said, Mickey, this article is not about you. It's about a larger problem in this industry that every retailer and brand's going to have to confront." And I said, "It's it's it's this. You don't have a product problem. You have a brand problem, and you have a brand problem because you were in the old world. You were in the old world, like." Levi, like Ralph Lauren, like, and what I mean by that is these new millennials and Gen Zs taking over as a dominant consumer cohort, they see two worlds. They see an old world, they see a new world, which uh-huh. is theirs, and they are creating it, and they are making it happen, and they don't want what their father or their grandfather or their mothers or their older sisters were wearing or the brands that they used. They want their own, and mm-hmm. I'm sorry, but J. Crew falls into that basket along with a whole bunch of other ones, like Ralph Lauren. They're struggling. Uh, Gap is, I mean, uh, Levi is, uh, is, is slogging along. Um, in fact, I did a, um, a survey among uh, the young students at FIT, and um, you know, it's kind of a random survey, but I said. I want you guys to write down the top 25 brands that you think are cool. I don't care what product category or other. Anyway, it can be any product category. So I said, and um, anyway, so <laughs> they did. Were any of those I, brands in, in that, or is, it, is, is your point there that none of these brands like J. Crew and Ralph Lauren and others featured in anything that the, the students wrote down? They didn't make the survey. Yeah. They came back with 25 names, Michael, of the only name I saw on there that I knew was Bonobos. Mm-hmm. The others, I can't even remember. I couldn't even tell right. you what they are now. Yeah. I think, I Clearly think, Supreme, of... I think Supreme was on there. Yeah, but Supreme, of that, course, would be. I'm sure all birds and folks like that as well. One of the challenges, yeah. I think, for all of these legacy brands is how do you stay relevant uh, to the new consumer and also, you and I have talked a lot about this, how do you make your business scale to the fact that the the economy is demassifying? In other words, these mass brands that went across lots of different consumer segments are actually shrinking, and yeah. yet find yourself core and relevant to uh, a number of key constituents. So it's a, it's a pretty, pretty tough challenge. Yeah, it is. Well, Robin, I want to thank you. So much. We're, we're running into our next break here. Okay. I want to thank you. We're going to take another short break here. And you're listening to Shopcast, uh, Michael Dart and Robin Lewis talking about retail. We'll be thank right you, back. Thank you, Michael. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Only 12% of companies from the original Fortune 500 list remain on the list today. How do you ensure your organization stands the test of time? A.T. Carney works with Fortune 500 companies every day to answer this question. Visit atcarney.com to find out more. 
The American consumer market will soon include six generations for the first time. Prepare for the era of personalization and total connectivity with insights from consumers at 250. Join the conversation at atcarney.com forward slash consumers dash 250. The Voice America Live Events Channel is here now to showcase your corporate, individual, or organization's live event. Visit voiceamerica.com forward slash live events to see all of our past live events and find out more. Whether it's a multi-day conference, special speaker, or single-day event, we've got everything to make your event a success. We can do a few hours or a few days. For more information about taking your event to the next level, call Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or email info at voiceamerica.com. Again, that's Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or send us an email to info at voiceamerica.com. Voice America is where you are and where you want to be. Join us around the globe as we broadcast live from some of the most interesting events available. Don't forget to view all our live events, including on-demand access to past events that you may have missed by visiting voiceamerica.com forward slash live events. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You're tuned in to ShopCast, talking retail strategy, featuring Michael Dart as your host. Now, back to this week's program. Welcome back to ShopCast. I'm your host, Michael Dart. And for today's last segment, I'd like to just spend a moment or two answering some questions that I've had concerning Amazon. Over the next few podcasts, we're going to be spending a lot of time actually going deep into Amazon, uh, looking at it from the perspective of uh, if you're a brand, how do you participate on Amazon? How do you maintain your brand equity? How do you think of managing your business, given that uh, Amazon, in many regards, has a stated objective of destroying brands? I put that in quotation marks. I'm sure they don't quite say that. But we also talk about, and we'll be talking about, how retailers should think about cooperating with Amazon and what they need to do to also be successful. And so over the course of uh, the last few weeks, uh, a number of folks have raised questions around Amazon, Amazon strategy, where it's going. And I wanted to take a moment or two just to offer my perspectives on that. First question that people often ask is, well, Amazon's only successful because it's uh, it's not making money and Amazon never will make money. And that's one of the reasons why they are taking so much market share and it's unfair. Well, I think there's some truth in that, but I also think it's fair to say that if you actually disaggregate Amazon's business, you will see that, in fact, they have a lot of capacity both to make a lot of money and in many of the segments already are making a lot of money. You can't think about Amazon's business as a traditional retail margins business for a variety of reasons. The first is uh, they have, as I think most of us would be aware, a third-party marketplace where they're selling other people's goods on their marketplace and they're charging high fees for that. That actually is becoming an increasingly large portion of their business and that has a much higher margin structure profitability than their existing retail business. Second reason is that their retail business is relatively underdeveloped. And what do I mean by that? Well, first off, Amazon has a huge opportunity to take volume discounts from people selling on Amazon's platform that they've barely woken up to. Their fast growth, the way in which they've been extending into other verticals, means that Amazon itself has not been taking advantage of the volume discounts. When they turn around and start negotiating with suppliers for preferential treatment on the site uh, to help promote them, uh, then they're actually going to get a lot of potential discount, and that's going to improve their margins, and that could be very big. They also have only just started really exploiting pricing power. Uh, they do change their prices pretty significantly, but there's a lot of opportunity for Amazon to continue to change prices, be dynamically pricing, understanding uh, the preferences of different customers, the sensitivity to different prices, and that also offers a significant opportunity for margin enhancement. And the final area in terms of their developing their retail business is over the next few years, we're going to see a large number, I believe, of private label Amazon products. So if you think of going to Costco and you think of all of the Kirkland products that they've developed, high quality, great value, there's absolutely no reason why Amazon can't do the same and create a series of brands of which they have incredible margin structure, much higher margins than they have 
on any of their current branded products. That's obviously going to be a significant threat and challenge to all of the branded products selling on Amazon, uh, but it's going to be a great margin opportunity for them. Let me keep going on this question. Uh, Amazon Web Services, that's a huge part of the business. It's uh, one of their biggest businesses. It's going to be one of the biggest tech businesses. And that already has 20% operating margins. And so as that continues to grow, Amazon's margin and profitability are going to increase as well. And finally, they're in the early stages of developing their advertising business. Now, it may be that they'll never get as much advertising share as Google or Facebook. But because of the sheer volume of searches that are taking place on Amazon, they are going to become an incredibly attractive place for advertisers to spend their dollars. And that business is in its nascent stages and also has a very high margin structure. So in terms of asking the question, Amazon will never make money and, uh, uh, and it's unfair advantage because they're, they are pricing themselves so low and they don't have to make a return – I think they are actually on the cusp of making in a large number of their segments a lot of profitability, and it seems like a very smart strategy in the long run, the way they're deploying it. And obviously, the stock market is rewarding them for that. Another question that people have asked is, well, how much momentum is there behind Amazon? Surely, they've already taken a lot of share. They've grown very fast. Uh, they must be starting to slow. Well, there's a number of facts that suggest, in fact, that's not the case either. If we take a look at people who have ever shopped on Amazon uh, at any time period, 95% of those people returned and made a purchase this last year. That includes both prime and non-prime, by the way. Now, a lot of those folks are also spending in other places. So around 60% of them spend on legacy retailers like Walmart, like The Gap, uh, other places. 33% spend on eBay. Only right now, 3% spend on Jet.com. So what happens, though, if you look at that data, is as people actually move from non-prime to prime customers, they dramatically shift their dollars, their share of wallet, to Amazon. So right now, they've got incredible loyalty, and they've got even more loyalty with their prime customers, and their prime customers are increasingly penetrating the market. If we take a look at uh, some of the data around that, we'll see in 2013, about 7% of households had a Prime membership. In 2016, that was up to about 16%. And since then, the growth rate has been even faster. Estimates around 18 to 20% of households. At the same time, other benchmarks you could look at for this shift that's taking place in the consumer, Costco's memberships in 2013 were around 15%, they're estimated to be around 10% now, so a significant decline. Same things happened to Sam's Club, which went from just around 17% to under 10% as well. So what we've seen here is a significant shift in terms of the number of households who are looking to prime as their primary source, and that means that the dollars that are currently being spent in some of these legacy retailers and eBay and other places are dramatically switching to Amazon. And even places like Costco, which is, quite frankly, the best retailer, uh, I think, in the country, uh, they are starting to see potential threats to their membership. Now, Costco recently uh, uh, disclosed that they'd actually had uh, very high renewal rates and were doing very well, and obviously the, the metrics all seem to support that. Uh, but Costco is going to be the last place that Amazon really uh, knocks very, very hard. Uh, everybody else is going to go in between, but even they are starting to show a lot of weakness. Now, one other metric which I think is important is that uh, if you look at actually uh, the number of people who have both Costco memberships and Amazon Prime memberships, you start to see another interesting trend. In 2013, again, that was around 5%. It's estimated to be now around 14%. So 14% of people have actually, who had a Costco membership, have now got a Prime membership as well, and they haven't canceled their Prime, uh, their Costco membership just yet. Uh, but the question I pose is, why would they not uh, shut that down at some point? Why would they not actually just switch to Amazon as Amazon starts to get an increasing number of products, an increasingly competitive price point, increasing knowledge about the consumer? So in answer to the question, has Amazon's momentum uh, stopped or slowed down? I think the answer is no. It's actually starting to uh, continue to accelerate. In fact, it may even be accelerating. Uh, so that is going to be uh, pretty significant. 
Another question people ask is, well, how many different businesses can Amazon disrupt? Uh, it's just a marketplace, isn't it? Well, the answer to that is no, it's not just a marketplace. It is actually um, increasingly looking like some sort of little mini nation state, but it's certainly a business that has tentacles everywhere. As I've mentioned, it's already in technology with uh, AWS. It's already in advertising and starting to grow. But there's a huge opportunity for Amazon to disrupt the distribution and logistics world. They've had a number of initiatives over the last few years to optimize their supply chain, the flow of goods from China all the way through to the United States. They've started negotiating contracts, taking out the, the middlemen who would typically negotiate rates and all different aspects around their business. And what we're seeing is that you have estimates now that says Amazon could actually have a global supply chain business of around $400 billion. Um, that's pretty significant. So if you think of just Amazon as a marketplace, it's not. It's going to be a distribution company. In fact, all the distributors uh, in the U.S., if they're not already thinking about how to meet this challenge, should be. That's from food service uh, providers, maybe pharmaceutical distributors, uh, you name it. Any type of distributor is open to being disrupted because of Amazon's capabilities. So when people say it's a, just purely a marketplace and uh, that's all it offers. It clearly isn't. It's going to be a business that continues to morph and to grow. And one of the interesting aspects is whether or not uh, some of the rumblings that the White House have offered about uh, looking into whether or not Amazon needs to be broken up uh, actually takes place. Uh, the reality is the current uh, way in which we look at uh, concentration of business and the need to break up monopolies really doesn't apply to Amazon. They don't have share in any particular segment unless you define the market very narrowly that would suggest that. But the impact, the implications across all of the economy are profound. So uh, those are a few perspectives. Uh, we will be digging, as I say, into a micro level on how to think about uh, dealing with Amazon and how to position a brand in an upcoming episode. And if you do have any other questions, again, don't hesitate to send them to me at shopcast at atcarney.com. That's A-T-K-E-A-R-N-E-Y. And uh, I will periodically be addressing all of the major questions that, uh, that come through. So I want to thank you for joining us on today's show and look forward to uh, our next show next week. Thank you. Thank you for listening to ShopCast, talking retail strategy. Please join host Michael Dart for another edition of the program next Friday morning at 10 a.m. Eastern Time and 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. And check out past episodes at any time on demand. We hope you enjoy your week.